The Water Values Podcast, Session 9. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Today we're talking with David Zetland, an economist focusing on water issues. Now this goes back to my roots a little since I was an economics major in college. Now David fills us in on a lot of important economic concepts that relate to how we think about water and how we value water. And he provides a very interesting discussion. I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Now the published portion of the interview is about 37 minutes, so I'll minimize the introductory talk so we can get right into it. But I still need to provide the disclaimer that this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else, and information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Professor Zetland, thanks very much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Greatly appreciate your time. Um, do you mind if I call you Dave or David? Sure. No, that's either way. It's fine. No problem. Terrific. Uh, well, to start off with, uh, Dave, why don't you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Uh, okay, great. I um, was born and raised in California. And uh, uh, I haven't, I wasn't very interested in water, let's say, <laughs> uh, except as a consumer. Um, but I went, uh, in my 20s, I went traveling for five years and uh, went to over 60 countries and saw a lot of different ways of living life, let's say. Um, and I came back to the Bay Area in the middle of the dot-com boom and uh, uh, after a while decided I wanted to go to graduate school instead of becoming a, a tech millionaire. And <laughs> I went to UC Davis uh, to do a PhD in development economics because I wanted to find out what made development countries develop and so on. And the topic I chose for my, my dissertation was going to be drug cultivation in South America. And my advisors were a little bit worried that I wouldn't survive my research phase. <laughs> and I, I agreed with them because uh, that was a kind of a silly idea. But in, the, in just, you know, passing time with the professor, I started talking to him about a, uh, what ended up being uh, the topic in my dissertation. And, and the title of the dissertation was called, is called Conflict and Cooperation Inside of an Organization. And it was a, a case study of the, the Metropolitan Water District of Southern California. And most people don't know this, but it's the, one of the larger utilities in the United States. And what I found to be really fascinating about Metropolitan was that it was a co-op, but the members of the co-op, which include Los Angeles and San Diego and Beverly Hills, a lot of you know well-known communities, those members were all fighting with each other, which is why the, the, the name has conflict in the title. And as I got into this area of water management, I started to see a whole bunch of parallels between man water management failure and essentially what developing countries can't do, which is they can't overcome uh, various problems with serving uh, uh, citizens 
they have interest groups and they have misallocated resources and they have subsidies and all kinds of things that are we think of as being problems in, in developing countries and kind of the reason that people are poor, a lot of those same reasons and patterns show up in water management, not just in those developing countries, but also in the United States and many other countries. So I've been doing water economics for about a decade now, and I've been drawing, but I've been drawing on this background of development, which is, you know, why do people do their job and, and how can we as a community manage our water? Okay. You mentioned uh, patterns in water management. Uh, what are some of those patterns that, that you noticed? The, the most significant ones uh, are that most water is managed by a monopoly uh, or various monopolies. So your tap water comes to you from your water utility, which is a monopoly. Uh, farmers get irrigation water, usually from an irrigation district or a, a water distribution organization that's also a monopoly. Um, and you can go down the list. And so a lot of the ways that water is managed is through this monopolistic uh, structure, uh, and that's not a problem when the monopolist is is working on behalf of the community to make sure that everything is done efficiently, whether it's bringing tap water to your faucet or making sure that you know the, the right farmers get the water when there's a shortage of water. But it can be a real problem if the monopolist either is is um, uh, misguided in terms of following some set of guidelines that don't serve the community, or actually even corrupt, and the monopolist is doing whatever. Uh, it wants to without regard to what's good for the community. That's one feature which is very significant. Another one is that water issues are uh, a very local. Uh, unlike other utilities, um, like telephones, for example, which can be nationwide in terms of utility networks, or uh, energy, uh, and, and, and which is, which is a, a resource but also utility space, which has a lot of connections with trade around the world, Water is a very local uh, commodity or it's a very local uh, community good, and therefore it's important that um, regions manage their water, and if they do, then they can be self-sufficient and happy and not necessarily worry about failure next door. But if they fail, they may not be bailed out by people next door. A another pattern which I spend a huge amount of time as an economist telling people about is, is the difference between um, – the value of water, the price of water, and the cost of water. And the cost is the cost of delivering water to your tap uh, or to, your, to a farmer's field. It's the cost of pumping, the cost of infrastructure, the cost of uh, personnel, chemicals, uh, uh, and all those ki kinds of costs. Um, and the, the price of water, generally speaking, is, is targeted at recovering those costs. Uh, but that price uh, and the price of water is often significantly lower than the value of water. Uh, the value of water is, of course, what we're willing to pay for it. And uh, I'm willing to pay a whole bunch of money for a glass of water if I'm thirsty, right? Um, right. But I'm, I'm also willing to pay to uh, water my lawn. I don't have a lawn, but if I had a lawn to water my lawn, I'd be willing to pay for washing the dishes and so on. Um, so that's the value. And water, more or less, for, for most uh, household uh, people, residential users of water, water is a tremendous deal. We, we pay in the U.S. an average of about, um, uh, what is it? It's about $1 or $2 for 250 gallons of water. Um, and that's roughly 1,000 times. So bottled water is roughly 1,000 times higher than that. <laughs> 
Right. <laughs> so we're getting a pretty good deal on most water. Uh, the the problem shows up from an economic and an environmental perspective when uh, not because that water is cheap, but because uh, the price of water may not include some costs that are relevant. And the one I talk about all the time is the cost of scarcity. So um, generally speaking, in, in the industry, the cost recovery does not include any cost or value for water, the water itself. The water mm -hmm. is kind of free. Right. And, and by that, I mean you have a utility They'll pump groundwater out of the ground and put it in pipes and, and treat it and bring it to your tap. You'll pay for the pumping. You'll pay for the pipes. You'll pay for the treatment. You'll pay for the treatment plant. You'll pay for the guy that comes to read your, read your meter, but you won't pay for that raw groundwater. And that's not a big deal if there's abundant water. And basically, all you, you can use as much as you want as long as you pay the price. But it is a big deal if uh, there's not a lot of water and... You're willing to pay the price, but the utility might run out of water at that price. What it means is that the water's too cheap, and the price is too low, and the price has to rise to get people to use less water. And that's me as an economist. This is a very difficult concept to bring into the water sector for people who are not – they're usually trained as engineers. They're not trained as economists. Well, that's a good segue to talk about rates a little bit. Rates are often set on a cost basis according to state statute, and it can be very difficult under those cost-based statutes or cost-based rate statutes uh, to get conservation rates approved because really the marginal cost of the next gallon of water is almost always less than the cost of the previous gallon. And so that kind of fosters declining block rates, but that leaves an externality or something that's not taken into account which is what I think you've talked about, about the cost of scarcity. Could you talk a little about the different mechanisms for pricing the water that utilities sell? There's, there's a couple ways of charging for water. And, and we're talking again about drinking water. We're not talking about bulk water for farmers and so on, or, or frackers for that matter. Right, right. Um, but for residential water, usually your bill, the, the, the first bills that came out were, were fixed. It was part of your property taxes. And some people still pay for water as part of their property taxes. They have no water meter. They use as much water and they flush the toilet and they produce as much wastewater as they want, but they pay a fixed charge. And, and those systems are, are obviously easy to administer um, and they don't provide any conservation incentives, but they're reasonable when there's a lot of water around. Because uh, all you really need to do is make sure you pay the cost of running the system. Uh, then comes the idea that uh, we should charge for the volume of water people use, either because we want people to pay in proportion to how much they use, uh, which makes sense for, uh, you know, if you want to discriminate between commercial water users and residential users or heavy users and light users. Uh, or because you want conservation. You want to say, look, every unit of water you use is going to cost you something, so you should think more about it. You don't just turn on the tap and leave the house for a week. Uh, and when you get into that uh, pricing method, you have some fixed charges, which are every month, no matter how much water you use. So that's similar to the old system. But now you have a volumetric charge, which depends on how much water you use. Right. And there's three different ways of doing volumetric charges. The The obvious one is what's called a uniform rate, which means uh, you pay the same amount per unit of water for no matter how many units of water you use. So 
say that uh, you know I was using this. Uh, we'll use a, a unit of a thousand gallons. So you, your first thousand gallons is two dollars. Your second thousand gallons is two dollars, and so on. This is very similar to pricing gasoline or or any other uh, uh, commodity we use per unit. Uh, another idea, which is what you talked about, is called decreasing block rates, which means uh, the more water you use, the less you pay per unit. So you pay $2 for the first 1,000 gallons, and you pay $1.50 for the next 1,000 gallons, and $1 for the next 1,000 gallons. And this system uh, was put in place in a lot of play, uh, uh, areas where economists had an influence saying, you want to match pricing to costs. And the pricing should be lower if you use more because your fixed costs are spread over a larger volume. The thing that's crazy, of course, is that you have a, a fixed charge that can can complicate that thing. Right. So um, the decreasing block rates, let's say it this way, are an old way of charging for water, definitely used in some places, not considered to be a, a best practice anymore. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, the biggest one is that it encourages people to use more water which no one anywhere actually thinks is a great idea. Um, so that's kind of going by the wayside. Another way of charging is the opposite, is increasing block rates, which means you pay $2 for a unit of water, you pay a $2.50 for the next 1,000 gallons of water, you pay $3 for the next 1,000 gallons of water. Increasing block rates are, are meant to uh, do two things. They're, they're meant to reflect increasing costs, which is the opposite of what we just talked about. So the systems obviously vary, but also they're trying to give people some uh, stronger conservation signal along the lines of a thousand gallons is okay, but 2000 gallons is too much. You should really pay more. Um, and the thing that's curious about increasing block rates uh, is that they're used in water, but they're not really used in almost any other sector. And the only place where they're close to being used is like in mobile phones if you go over your minutes you pay a penalty price or in electrical utilities they might have uh, or energy utilities you might have charges that go up in the middle of the day because it's more expensive to provide energy and so on uh, and the the all these different rates what they're meant to do is they're trying to recover costs and change behavior and I've thought about this a long time, and I used to be a big fan of increasing block rates. I used to have a bumper sticker that says some for free and pay for more, <laughs> um, which I consider to be the, the, the reconciliation of communism and capitalism. Um, but I, I feel like uh, increasing block rates are actually not only too complicated for consumers to understand, because you don't usually know when you are in a different block, but... Uh, but they're also very difficult to design correctly to get that cost recovery target. And they don't necessarily do a good job at uh, helping people conserve water. Well, let's talk about price as a signal. How can, how can we get price to better you know, signal to end users the true value of water? What, what kind of mechanisms do you recommend we adopt? Well, I want to be careful about using the words true value of water uh, because those values are different for you and they're different for me. Um, Fair enough. And I want to draw, draw an analogy with the, the, the true value of iPhones, let's say. And if I go to an, an Apple store and I say, hey, this is $450 for an iPhone, uh, I'll pay that. 
then the only thing you know as an outside observer is that that must be worth more than $450 to me. And that's true with almost everything that we buy at, uh, in an open market, uh, including, but it could be including water. Like I'll pay $100 for a liter of water when I'm in the middle of the Sahara Desert because that's better than dying, right? So values are, are, are they vary from person to person and they also vary with circumstances. Uh, and, and what we want to do with water is we want to make sure that, on the one hand, uh, when it comes to utilities, public utilities, that there's enough water for uh, everyone's uses, but also that we don't run out of water. And what that means is we have to have some kind of rationing when water is scarce. If water is abundant, you can sell as much as you want. I'm up in Vancouver. A lot of people in Vancouver are not even metered. Uh, Vancouver has a, a tremendous amount of water, so there's not necessarily a water shortage problem. Um, but when it comes to when you're coming to places uh, uh, where water scarcity is discussed, or water shortage, or or conflict, or uh, crisis, all these other words that people use, in those cases you want to uh, use some rationing method with water. Um, and as an economist, I talk. I, I think that the, the the best rationing method is pricing. Other rationing methods are, are much more complicated. You need to, for example, say uh, that uh, every person in the house is going to get 20 gallons or 50 gallons free or cheap before the price starts kicking in. Well, that in the United States, that's not going to happen because Americans don't like uh, having anybody know how many people live in the house. So it makes it difficult to have some kind of fair rationing method uh, when uh, you don't know how many people live there. And so I go back. That's why I come back to this. This. That's why, of course, uh, increasing block rates don't work either because they're not based on the number of people who live in the house. So I go back to the uniform block rates or I go to, back to the uniform pricing and I say, okay, we have 100 units of water and people are using 10 units a day. So we're going to run out in 10 days. And uh, we don't want that to happen. So we had better raise the price and uh, let's raise it up uh, so that people are only using eight units of water a day, and then we can get we know we can get more water by the eleventh day, so we can bring more supply. You can have any example you want, but the main idea is that if we if we raise the price of water, people will use less of it, and if they use less of it, then that takes off the stress or the pressure on supply and reduces the chance of a shortage. The next thing people say is, if you raise the price of water, then my children are going to die of dehydration. And the rich people are going to buy all the water. And uh, that's possibly true, but uh, it's more common, I think, to talk about raising the price of water. You and your household might stop watering your lawn or you might do nothing different, uh, but you're probably not going to uh, take water away from your children. And rich people might keep watering their horses or washing down their Ferraris, but all we care about in terms of raising water prices is what everybody does as a group. And some people will respond and some people won't respond, but as a group we'll respond by reducing our consumption of water, which will reduce the risk of a shortage or uh, and, and address scarcity. So that's kind of a, a, a long way of saying that if we raise the price of water, we reduce the, the risk of shortage. You know, one of the things that's going to underscore the issue of water pricing is that now there is just kind of a set price for water, right? You don't really price water at a specific time. With the advent of advanced metering infrastructure, AMI, 
it's my sense that utilities are looking into this you know, time of use pricing. What's the economist's take on time of use pricing in the water industry? Uh, it doesn't make sense in water compared to electricity. Um, and that's because electricity, they have peak demand at, you know, the 11 o'clock to 2 o'clock period in, in places where air conditioning is being used, for example. And they have peak demand and they have peak generation capacity. So they switch from, they have their baseload uh, power supply, whether it's, you know, nuclear or hydro or coal or natural gas. And then when they have peaking demand, they have to turn on diesel generators, which cost a lot more. For example, water is... is uh, a lot more uh, uniform in terms of its supply. It comes from a reservoir. It might take a couple days to get to your tap. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to change the daily pricing of water, um, especially when you can store it. You can store water like you can't store electricity. So I think that, that um, time of use pricing is, is never going to show up in water. But on the other hand, seasonal pricing or scarcity pricing absolutely should show up in water. And the easiest thing to do would be to say, um, in the summertime, we're going to have prices double uh, at, in their level because, uh, number one, it's hotter, but we want to discourage you using water for outdoor landscaping. And number two, uh, there's not a lot of water around in the summer compared to the winter when traditionally it's raining or the reservoirs are full. So um, I would use that. And an analogy to that is is what they call the the, the the they call the summer driving season in the United States uh, for 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 gasoline prices and industry analysts they always talk about there will be an increase in demand for the summer driving season and uh, holding all else equal we see that the price of gasoline will go up well that's because the price of gasoline is meant to balance supply and demand and that same uh, method can be used to balance supply and demand for water in the summer season. The summer watering season, so to speak. All right. Well, and, and this and this is, I mean, this is a, a key idea. People talk about water crisis all the time, but you know, the United States is not unique in the world, but it's pretty far out there in terms of using drinking water on lawns. And uh, a lot of countries don't even get close to that kind of water consumption. So, uh, on the one hand, I think it's fine for people to have water on their lawns. On the other hand, I think we should not have a crisis or even talk about a crisis while lawns are being watered. And in that sense, if we change policies to keep supply and demand balanced to prevent water shortages, that's generally going to mean that the price of water goes up where water is scarce, and it's going to mean that irrigating your lawn is going to be more expensive where water is scarce. And that's a very important fact that people have to accept. If they, th if they think that their lawn is a human right, and they think that it's okay to run down a reservoir to keep their lawn green, then they're probably not going to be um, doing too well in the future. Smart meters or water meters that have minute-by-minute um, -minute feed outs are extremely useful. Uh, they're not necessarily useful for peak pricing like I was talking about, but they're very useful for finding leaks. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and, and they can be installed temporarily or permanently, but you know, once you find the leaks, boy, you, you do quite a bit to uh, reduce water waste. Now, you've got a new book out. Could you tell us a little bit about that book? Right. So uh, Living with Water Scarcity is, is my second book uh, on water policy. Uh, the first one is called The End of Abundance. And, and both of these books uh, come from 
very wide-ranging discussions I've had with people over these years uh, at my blog, Aguanomics. And so Living with Water Scarcity is the one that I just published uh, last week. And it's, uh, it's a short book, <laughs> which is the, it's the most important selling point is short. <laughs> Uh, it's a it's a short book uh, that um, discusses different uses of water uh, and the and the 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 way that we want to think about uh, not using it, but the policies that affect using the water. Uh, and the reason that I have the different uses in there is because all of these uses tend to be interconnected. Uh, so if we take water out of the environment and we use it for industry or irrigation, uh, uh, then we have to weigh those, those trade-offs. If we have water that we're using uh, or we're, we're paying for water at a, at a utility, we need to think about how to price water. If we're having uh, farmers and they have water and they have shortages, uh, it's important to, to think about groundwater uh, monitoring and uh, water markets and water rights. Uh, what about recycling water? What about human rights and water, uh, water wars and water conflict? There's a chapter for each of these topics, but the, the chapters are also um, intermeshed so that you can see how these all these different water uses relate to each other. And I've had uh, six years of practice with these topics on my blog, and so I'm getting the presentation to the point where the book is only 110 pages. <laughs> well, why don't you pick one of those um, uh, topics or those chapters and tell us, you know, kind of give us a, a deeper dive on on you know what what it's all about there yeah let me let me just uh bring up one which is which is totally coming out of left field for a lot of people but it's i think it's really an interesting uh developing area in water and water scarcity so the first one is uh that i already mentioned in passing with drinking water is you know we need to price drinking water to recover the cost of the system and we have to price it for scarcity and you know i go into a whole bunch of discussions of of subsidies and how people are subsidizing each other in a very unsustainable way and i kind of talk about how to remove those subsidies for drinking water but then we we i people tend to to ignore the the second half of water's life let's call it in your home which is what happens with wastewater and toilet water and the water that we just you know use that goes down the sink and uh in the water business in the industry uh, uh the engineers and managers spend a lot of time on this in fact Usually, you spend more than half of your money on on wastewater costs, not on drinking water costs, and that's because uh, the wastewater plant that takes all the sewage that comes from from houses and from industry and so on in a city, that plant has to clean a whole bunch of different substances out of the water that was never there when they took it originally from a river or from the groundwater. They have to clean all those substances out in a multi-stage process, and then they usually discharge that water uh, back into the environment, into the groundwater, into the ocean. And wastewater definitely is not sexy. It's an image that people don't want to think about. And, and there's this expression, toilet to tap, which is the expression for recycling uh, wastewater into drinkable water. And, of course, it's toilet to treatment to tap. So they don't take your toilet water and put it right in your faucet. But... Um, that uh, uh, area of, of water uh, policy and, and water technology and, and water operations is becoming really interesting because of two converging uh, um, trends. The first one is that 
environmental regulations mean that wastewater discharges have to be cleaner and cleaner and cleaner. Because in the old days, you would just, I mean, I, and you go to developing countries, you see it. They, they have a, an outhouse that's literally over the river. And someone goes in the outhouse, does their business, it goes straight in the river. And then, you know, kids might be swimming in the river, boats might be going in the river. So there's not very much treatment going on there. They might, you know, people might drain the oil in their car and just pour it in the river. That's how a lot of people still treat water. They treat it as an open sewer. But in the United States and a lot of other countries, regulations and, and social uh, norms have changed, and we want to have cleaner discharges so that we don't do uh, we don't get the environment dirty for our own selves or for fish or anything like that that we care about. So wastewater discharges are getting cleaner. On the other hand, water scarcity is increasing in lots of places, uh, and that means that it's more important to find new sources of water. I already talked about reducing demand, but we also can talk about increasing supply. And you can increase supply by taking that treated wastewater, treating it even further so that it's drinkable, and then you can drink it. And that is uh, the reason this is interesting is because it's cheaper to uh, treat wastewater and bring it up to, to drinking water quality than it is to to, to do that with desalination, to take salt water from the ocean. The other reason this is interesting is because in some ways we've been doing it for a long time, except people don't talk about it, which is when a bunch of cities are on a river, those cities are taking in drinking water and discharging wastewater in the exact same river. So when you're downriver from a, a major city and, and your city is taking in drinking water, it's dirty. It has to be clean. In fact, it's dirty from someone else's old toilet water it has to be cleaned, and then you drink it already. We've been drinking that water for over 100 years. But now some cities are saying, wait a second, why are we discharging this really clean wastewater so someone else can get it? Why don't we just put it back into our own system and clean it up and put it back in the tap? Right. I agree. I think it's just a matter of getting people to wrap their minds around the, you know, the hydrologic cycle and what it really yeah. entails. I mean, it's, number one, it's, it's kind of a fact already. Number two, you could say, hey, look um, – you can pay 50 bucks a month for water and we're going to recycle wastewater or you can pay 100 bucks a month and we'll bring you uh, desalinated water. Which do you prefer? And yeah. there's, no, there's no difference on the laboratory uh, uh, testing of the quality. You can taste it. There's no difference from taste, but you're going to pay twice as much. And if you're really so worried about recycled wastewater, uh, then you can pay double. But if you're if you're more worried about money and you, you don't necessarily think that there's any difference in quality, then let's do that. I agree with you wholeheartedly. That is going to be revolutionary when we're able to really wrap our minds around. Yeah, it's, it's the... something that it's something that Americans are not so inclined to do. But, you know, in, in Singapore, it's absolutely seen as an obviously a good idea. In Israel, it's seen as a good idea. Australia, it's a good idea. Places that are confronting bigger water scarcity problems and and in some ways more realistic discussions in public those places have embraced uh water recycling in the united states there are still there's still a very large group of people who who want to eat their cake and have it they just do not uh believe they believe the tooth fairy is going to bring them more water honestly and <laughs> it's 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 quite astonishing what people are willing to believe despite the facts so we talked about wastewater reuse and recycling from your book. What what are some of the other chapters in your book uh, that you want to discuss? 
Oh, I could talk about any of them. You want. <laughs> the, the, fir- the first one. So let me go through them one by one, and and then you you know that'll help the readers understand it, but also you can pick out whatever you want. So the the one on on the first chapter is a uh, you know just why why are we talking about water scarcity and and the difference between scarcity and shortage and 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 the thing that I bring up in that one is that that scarcity is. We deal with scarcity all the time. It's it's scarcity for real estate. It's scarcity for seating at your favorite restaurant and so on. And we find ways of dealing with it. And, and that's what the book is about, is, is finding ways of dealing with water scarcity. Uh, the next chapter goes into drinking water. It's the longest chapter in the book because uh, drinking water is really significant to people. Uh, water pricing is really important. The subsidies that go into water pricing uh, are some of the reasons why we have a lot of urban sprawl, for example. Um, the next chapter is on uh, uh, drinking water. Sorry, um, wastewater, which I just mentioned. I'm going. I'm getting the table of contents here because I want to get in the right order. <laughs> uh, oh, sorry. The next one is on, is called water for profit, and that's about bottled water, which is which is not a problem. Uh, a lot of people freak out about bottled water, but I just kind of explain why it's not an issue. Uh, also. Water for profit for water for businesses. Businesses shouldn't get subsidized water, for example. Uh, for profit versus uh, uh, public or municipal water utilities, like how they can perform or how they can fail. Uh, then there's the chapter on recycled water, which I just mentioned to you. Uh, the, the, the last chapter in, in part one, I'll tell you what part one is in a second. The last chapter is on, on food and water. So that's mostly farmers uh, who use about 80 to 70 to 80% of the water uh, and how agricultural irrigation works and how markets can help farmers uh, grow food and uh, not need bailouts from the government. And part one of the book, so that's part one, that's the first 50 pages. That part one is what I call uh, commodity water, and it's water as an economic good. And part two is all about water as a social good. And this is uh, a really important distinction that almost everybody is aware of, but they don't necessarily discuss it in, um, uh, let's say, uh, easy-to-understand terms. And uh, the way I talk about it is that we have a certain amount of water in our country, our society, our community, and we need to divide the water into uses that are, are communal uses, like the water in a river or a lake that we all enjoy, or we need to... And we have to make decisions in the community that it's going to affect all of our water uses, like uh, like water infrastructure and so on. And then once we've taken care of the community, we can take care of ourselves. So part two is about community water. Part one is about commodity water. So part one is tap water and, and farmies, farmers and water and so on. But part two is a, is a discussion of the, the, the social dimension of water. And, and those chapters are about water and, and human rights, which is a bigger problem in developing countries because of um, mostly because of political corruption. Uh, and then, uh, but uh, sorry, I start off that part by talking about the politicians and water managers and the bureaucrats who are running those monopolies or telling those monopolies what to do. And sometimes they succeed in representing us and sometimes they fail because they represent special interests. And it's a significant discussion that, that everybody should understand. Then I go into human rights and water, which is uh, uh, not an issue in, in, in the U.S. necessarily uh, because we have plenty of money to pay for water. Infrastructure, which is a very big issue in the United States because infrastructure is destiny in many ways. Um, so if you build a dam or you build a canal, you'll, you'll have a huge impact on future 
population patterns. Um, and then Water Wars, which is um, a, another chapter on how countries might not uh, be cooperating with water use. And that could be, you know, Egypt with the upstream countries. It could be the U.S. and Mexico with the, the Rio Grande or the Colorado River. It can be the European countries and the Rhine River and so on. And then the last chapter is about environmental water, which is really the biggest social use of water because uh, it's a huge volume of water and it affects us all in big ways, especially when we talk about climate change. Okay, well, go, let's let's take that last one, the environmental water. Talk what what is the environmental water that you're talking about, and how does it impact all of us? Well, first of all, the environmental water flows or, or environmental water it can be everything. It's the water in the ocean. It's the water that goes by in the lakes. It's the water that, um, uh, or sorry, it goes by on rivers. It's the water in lakes. It's uh, in some ways it's groundwater that we share uh, because multiple entities are using the groundwater. Uh, the biggest dimension of uh, the biggest factor that's going on there with environmental water is that we all benefit from it. And uh, if someone pollutes it, that one person's action can affect all of us in a, in a detrimental way. If someone takes that water for irrigation, for example, that person's private gain uh, is, is coming uh, with a social cost. And that's just a fact. And so uh, it doesn't mean we shouldn't have irrigation. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have piped water. It just means that we have to have a, an adult discussion about how much we want to leave in the environment and how much we want to take out for human uses, uh, what I call direct human uses, because the environment gives us indirect benefits. And the important part of these discussions is that we have to be flexible and say that, you know, 50 years ago, we didn't care about the environmental water flows uh, in this river, for example. But maybe today we're changing our mind and we have, as a, as a community, have to decide how to move from where we are to where we want to be. And it's, it, I, I try not to sing Kumbaya in this chapter, but it's really significant that communities cooperate in terms of making those decisions. Uh, and there's lots of different ways of doing it. And I, and I don't discuss those in the book because it depends on the community. It's, it's a local solution problem uh, that has to be solved locally, local problem that has to be solved locally. All right. Well, Dave, thanks very much. Really appreciate your time. You've, you've taken us on a very wide um, expanse here of the value of water and, and price and how economics impact it. And your book sounds absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to read it. Um, so for all the listeners out there, where can they go to find out more about you and your work? Right. So the, the, my blog is called Aguanomics, which is Agua with a G, not Aqua, aguanomics.com. Uh, and the book is uh, easy to find. It's at livingwithwaterscarcity.com, just livingwithwaterscarcity.com. And you can, you can read sample chapters. You can, I'll have a video up there introducing the book, but, uh, you know, it's, it's actually it's very cheap. It's $10 for the paperback and $5 for the, uh, the Kindle or the PDF copies because, I want people to uh, be able to read this stuff and not pay too much, not take too much time. Awesome. And we'll include links to those in the show notes. Um, thanks for your time, Dave. Greatly appreciate it. All right. Thanks, David. You bet. Well, that was my interview with David Zetland. He was great to work with, and he sure packed a lot into that interview. Some of the key takeaways for me were reinforcing the idea that the price of water is frequently much less than the value of water. 
Another was examining the different rate structures for water and how an economist views those different rate structures from the increasing block rates to the decrease, decreasing block rates to uniform block rates. Um, and I was very interested in David's notion that increasing block rates are too difficult for consumers to understand. And I was interested in his belief that time of use rates, rates likely will not be implemented in water utilities, but the currently and more common seasonal rates are good and make a lot of sense. Now, that's a lot of food for thought when looking at how to price water. And another key takeaway for me was highlighting that water issues are typically local in nature, and these local problems require local solutions. That means cooperation amongst local water users. And that is another theme that runs throughout a number of our interviews that we've done um, over the course of the Water Values podcast. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod nine. And please don't be bashful in letting me know what interested you about the interview by leaving a comment on the show notes or by emailing me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can also tweet at me at DTM1993. I just want to say a big thank you to all of you who helped the podcast hit 1,500 downloads late last week. We also had our highest ever number of downloads in a single day last week, blowing the previous record out of the water by 150%. So thanks so much. And finally, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes and Stitcher and any other podcast directory on which you download the podcast. That would be so very helpful in spreading the word about the podcast. And don't forget to tell your friends about the podcast and to sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which can be done at thewatervalues.com. Now, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. You've been listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with us.